Oh, yeah. We're back on Extra Bases with Bristol and Booth. It is Thanksgiving week. Jeremy, in baseball, what are you most thankful for? What about baseball makes you feel most thankful for? Ah, uh, wow. Yes. Um, yes. Hitting them, hitting them with a Barbara yeah. Walters question right I, out I, the gate. I am thankful for um, the relationships. I am thankful for the people. I am thankful for uh, the opportunities I've been given to make a difference along the line. All that's been through baseball. I would agree. I definitely, that's why I struggle sometimes with all the analytics, analytics of the game. Yes, I love numbers. I love stats. But what drew me to baseball was the people and their stories and what they endure. So that's what I am still thankful for, that I get to be a part of that every day. I get to share it with you and I get to experience other people's stories and they allow me to tell them. So that's what I'm thankful for. Yes, that was very cleansing. <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been an interesting road. It's been a windy road. Uh, there's been some direct lines at different times, but I'm, I, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't trade a minute. So, all right, on today's show, the best report Jeremy has ever written is it the one that I posted on Twitter a couple of days ago? The Padres have hired a 27-year-old hitting coach. What's there to say about that? We don't know. And finally. The lockout. How long will it last? And what will be the long-term effects on the game? And we'll get a scouting report in. All right, Jeremy, leading off. The Padres have hired a 27-year-old hitting coach, Michael Berdar. I had to look up the name and how to pronounce it from his days at Michigan. My first reaction was, he's younger than some of the players. How is this going to work? I imagine I'm not alone in that assessment. If you were Michael Berdar, how would you go into a job like this? And well, what, I, would I, be, what would be your what would be your plan of attack, if you will? So I, I'm just jumping to kind of answer this question because the Padres should have learned. At least I would think they would have learned from what just happened with Jace Tangler, right? Um, you, that clubhouse is going to want people they can relate to and respect that can pass on some experience and. Um, you know, Jace Tingler did not do that well. I think that's fair. Just at, at bare minimum, that didn't work. Um, when you bring in a, a hitting coach or a coach of any kind, I don't know if the age matters so much as much as the experience and the knowledge level. Um, I don't, I, I'd be, I'd be, you know, I'd be lying if I said I knew a whole lot about this guy. I don't, and I haven't had um, any opportunity or frankly, I got to say this, the, the hire just didn't make me want to look any further than just that. Right. But to look, if you're going to look further, you have to feel like he might be a swing coach. He might be a plan coach. He might be an analytics coach. There's got to be something he brings to the table for the Padres to see value in him. And so for that, we got to get benefit of the doubt as to how they think he may fit. Also, Bob Melvin had to have some kind of say in this. He's the manager, right? So he had to sign off on him somehow. Um, I don't know what they're doing. I got to believe there's another mix in there. Maybe they think somebody else can handle the experience and the, edu and the education. This guy's just a mechanics guy. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's a game planning guy. You know, we've got terms in baseball now called offensive coordinator. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that's happening. So um, I don't really have a whole lot to say because I'm not sure what he's going to do. 
I know what the title says, but I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, swing coach is a better way to put it. I don't know what he's going to do. Um, at 27, I know I said the age doesn't matter. My only question would be what experiences he have that he can pass on, right? Because if he's an analyst, he's an analyst. If he's a swing coach, he's a swing coach, and, and that can work too, but that's not a hitting coach. So it's going to be interesting to see which way they go with it because I don't have any idea why they would hire you know somebody on the surface with this type of um, background. Well, it's not clear really what kind of role he had with the Giants last year. Mm -hmm. Although on the surface, you look at what the Giants did as a team hitting wise and pitching wise and just wise in general, the fact that they put together the greatest season in the history of that franchise. So obviously he's considered a rising star in the industry to get a job like this at the age of 27. What I'm also reading here. Um, he missed playing with Jake Cronenworth by a year at the University of Michigan. So that tells yeah. you, again, that gives you some perspective of how young this guy is. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't have any insight into what a hire like that's going to do with a Manny Machado, right, with Eric Cosman. I mean, what are those guys what – is, what is he going to tell them? You know, again, if it's a swing coach and it's a game planning coach, that's different. But if it's a hitting coach, a pure hitting coach – that's only part of what a hitting coach is. There's a lot more that goes into it, relating to players, uh, pulling on bat past the bats, understand how to break down video, pitch selection and approach. They call them swing decisions now. I mean, that just means pitch selection and play discipline. And 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 it's it's not uh, that stuff has to be related based on experience, not just on numbers. So don't know don't know much about them. Not going to go into the start off, you know, killing the guy and, and saying he can't do anything, but. It was one of those things where I saw, I was like, what, what? Okay. And I, I you know, with that organization in particular, just haven't gone through what they did with Jace Tingler. I would think they would uh, have a different perspective, but they didn't. Meanwhile, Ken Rosenthal on Tuesday night tweeting that major league baseball and the players union have agreed to move the tender deadline from December 2nd to November 30th. This way arbitration eligible players will not be in contractual limbo. A player who gets non-tendered will have the ability now to sign with a new club before a lockout or the lockout begins. Major League Baseball, meanwhile, effectively will flood the market with more free agents who might get pressured into lower deals after the lockout ends. Certainly, you can see both sides of it. This lockout, I just think, but we always say this, there's always so much at stake. Right. And you would think the cooler heads would prevail. How far... How far apart are these two sides, do you think? Well, I, mean, I haven't, I mean, we're not in the room. The sense I get is that it's pretty far. But the sense I get is also is that both sides are motivated to make a deal. Um, for me, just throwing this out there, I don't know why they didn't just kick this down a year. You know, play with the existing CBA for one more year. They could always agree to do that. And then start negotiations essentially right now for what 2023 would look like. They, did, they chose not to do that. It doesn't mean they may not, may not still come to that agreement, right? There's still plenty of time at any point they want. Um, I, if there's a lockout, I don't see it extending spring training. I think a lockout's a formal term of saying the CBA has expired. We're not on the same page. We're going to kind of cease everything in the offseason and see where this goes. But I, I think I don't think we miss any time. Um, if we do, maybe a week or two. But these guys are going to get back on the field and they're going to play baseball. I know it really doesn't play into this, but Major League Baseball um... – has really won a lot of battles of late, especially when you consider the consolidation of the minor leagues, um, some of the other instances. 
it, it just seems like both sides would really, in their best interest, want to get, get a deal done sooner than later because um, when you consider the lost revenue from the shortened season, I don't think you want to go through another shortened season where you could potentially lose even more revenue. Now, granted, billionaires are billionaires and they have a lot more money than the millionaires, but still I, I would think when you're running a business to have two shortened seasons, should this season, should the lockout continue into this season, that would be not, that would not be good for their bottom line. And I just think that there's a lot, a lot at stake actually on, on the owner's side in, in all this. I, yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. I mean, Manfred, Commissioner Manfred um, was booed at the World Series, right? He was booed, I think, at the ALCS. I mean, he's been booed pretty much everywhere. Um, All-Star game, I think he was booed going to the bathroom. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's one of those things where he needs to, and, and MLB itself needs to move this forward in a way that feels fan-friendly. I mean, there's been so much, and this, this I can say, you know, and, and I, I, one of the beauties, I guess, Jason, of what we do is that we're able to just say what we, we want to say, what the truth is, and not worry about um, anything but just telling the truth. And I feel pretty comfortable saying Major League Baseball has been so focused on numbers and so focused on efficiency, um, not just Jeff Luno and his people, but just as a whole, like the league has been focused on that for a long time. Um, and finding ways to be cost effective with their scouting and player development people, because, you know, in being a business owner myself, your business ex biggest expenses is people. That's my biggest expense is people. So if you can reduce the people and you can go ahead and they won't tell you that, but that's, that's what they've done is cut the scouting force and change the develop. They've done all that because that's the biggest expense. How do we get more efficient with that? Well, what, what's happened is they've got, they went too far and there's too many numbers that are ruling the game, like the Terminator movie, right? Just it's the machines. And so uh, MLB has a duty right now to get back to the fans and connect to the people who are not going to remember, you know, what somebody's WOBA is, but they are going to remember who hit the double in the gap to win game five to get them to give them another chance to play. And I think that's what um, that's how you move the game forward. It's emotion. It's emotion. You don't move the game forward by talking about what somebody's ex-FIP is. It's who can no, great. Thank you for that. But can this guy can this guy get me an out or not? Can I can I go to the next inning? And get, so maybe the owner that's on the owners. The players are going to play. The game is slowly shifting back to more traditional baseball. We've seen it. We've been very fortunate here in Houston that these Astros for several years have not struck out a lot, made high contacts, extra base hits, struck guys out, gotten ground balls. They've been a good baseball team. I think the league is shifting back towards that, and hopefully the CBA is a, is, is a step towards the people who will take this game for it. But here's also example 3,200 of why the owners are not in a bad position. Wander Franco getting $182 million from the, from the Rays. I mean, when you think of the Rays, what do people always say? Small market. Don't have a lot of fans. Terrible stadium. Now, granted, that could prove to be a huge, huge advantage for the Rays locking him up for this long at that price. It may also turn out the other way. I'm betting on the former because of what Wander Franco is capable of. Yep. But again, there's another example of the owners. Yeah, they're they're not hurting. No, they're not hurting. I mean, it's a good job for the, for the Rays. It's market value. You know, if you look at, I guess, some of the other contracts out there, the first 10, 11 years, you know, Machado, I think, is in line there. 
Um, Trout might be in line there. You know, some of the guys I think he's going to be, it's kind of in line with their first deal. It doesn't mean that deal is going to carry. It could be now in Tampa Bay, it probably will. But, you know, somewhere else, if that was, um, well, we saw the Angels do it with Trout, right? They bought out more of the contract and and, and extended him through his prime. So, um, you know, I I think uh, it's a good deal for both sides. For me, the Wander Franco contract gave me a little bit of an idea of what Correa should be expecting. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the market of the money that's really being spent. Like we talked about Syndergaard and Verlander, you know, and while I understand they're different players and I understand they're different points in their career, um, with the money that's being spent now, Corey Seager will sign before the lockout. Okay. That's just I'm not saying I have any, again, no inside knowledge. That's the, I would all, I would be shocked if he does not, the Dodgers are going to make a big push at him. The Yankees are not a fit. Um, the Rangers are a fit. The Astros are probably make going after him a little bit, but he's only got a few places he's going to play, um, you know, for that money. And I think the Dodgers resign. I just, I just think that's what they do. I think that happens sooner rather than later. Um, that market, him and Correa are going to be pretty similar, but I think Seager is going to be reasonable. He's going to take seven or eight years and in, in $250 million range, somewhere in there. You know, I think if you look at Correa, and I was doing, I don't ask me why I was doing this while I was working out today, but it came to my head on the contract. If you did seven and 250, that's 35 million a year. Okay. You do seven and 250 with an eighth, like we talked about last time, eighth is a player option and nine and 10 have to vest and he's got to earn them. And there's escalators if he does or bonuses to even go beyond that. If he hasn't signed that contract, he doesn't want to play baseball. Okay. Secondly, with the comments about Derek Jeter. He's not making any friends anywhere around the league. People are going to listen to that, and they're, do I really want to deal with that? I mean, and I'm not – look, nothing against Marcus Stroman, and I, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I got zero experience with him, but I've, I've seen that from a distance. And I can tell you that people are going to have a little pause about bringing that type of influence into their clubhouse. It doesn't mean that he can't be a teammate. I'm sure he's a great teammate. It doesn't mean he can't perform. He's obviously a great athlete. Like, there's a lot to be impressed about. But when you're that type of outspoken – um, you know, if you're that, doesn't matter who you are, Trevor Bauer, right? Not the easiest person to be. See, I disagree with you because so. Trevor Bauer now granted before everything, which happened this season, Trevor Bauer was just as outspoken and look at the deal he got. Well, but that, but see, that was three one-year deals that were his option. And I'll be shocked if he ever throws a pitch again for the Dodgers. Okay. Or anybody, to be honest with you, I, I don't think it, there, nobody wants, well, the Dodgers did, but many people didn't want that around. And the Dodgers had to think about it once, twice, three times, four times. And I don't think Stroman or Correa is anywhere near what Bauer is. I, I'm not saying that at all. I just think when you have that type of personality, it becomes a unique fit. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It becomes a unique fit somewhere. And Carlos Correa fits right here. He's not, he doesn't fit in New York. He's certainly not going to slide to third base for Francisco Lindor when he thinks he's better than Lindor anyway. He's not going to go to to the Yankees. That's not going to happen. The Phillies, I would bet, land Trevor Story if the Rangers don't. I just think Carlos Fitz is going to be back here in Texas. I just in Houston. I just do. And if I'm him, I just I, I look at what Wander Franco got. I'm going to watch Seager, and I'm going to sign that contract. The other fit is Detroit. I don't care what anyone says. They may not be as far as along as some people would think, but when you've got AJ Hinch there and you've got some of these arms that they have. I think their their relationship obviously I think makes that a fit because AJ knows Carlos, Carlos knows AJ. So other than the Astros, that would be 
And again, that's no great secret. I'm not, I'm not, uh, this isn't rocket science or anything, but that would be my other fit that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that either. I just, I look at what the Tigers have done in the past. And this isn't the first time they've had a bunch of huge free agents on a lot of money. You know, they, I, I went in and scouted them myself. And I, you know, the, the five they had at this rotation they had at that time, I think it was one of the best five days I've ever seen was like, you know, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, David Price, Rick Porcello when he was, you know, like in his dealing and uh, Annabelle Sanchez. It's pretty good five. You know, and they didn't, there weren't any World Series going on. So, you know, I it's it's not – it's Miguel Cabrera has been there how long? Prince Fielder was there. I mean, Ian Kinsler was there. Like, they've, they've not – they've thrown money after dollars, after, and they haven't won it yet. And I'm not saying that, that, that this culture in the clubhouse now is any different because AJ knows how to win. What I am saying is that's not always the answer. And if those guys have young talent and they have young players, it doesn't necessarily mean that Carlos is the right fit there. You know, just it doesn't – I mean he's the wrong fit it just doesn't mean he's the right one so um i think it comes down to those two teams i agree but if i'm carlos i'm staying right here in houston you sent me a scouting report the other day or a group of them one of them was george springer i then posted that scouting report from 2011 on twitter you liked george springer quite a bit we've known that your comparison was Eric Davis. This player can produce Eric Davis-like numbers. I'm paraphrasing. It was very interesting. One guy, I think, from maybe Seattle, maybe follows Jason Churchill, says, George Springer couldn't shine Eric Davis's shoes, which made me then go to baseballreference.com, and sure enough, on George Springer's page, the similarity scores at number five through age 31 was Eric Davis. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Is that the best report you've ever written? When you say best report, you mean the most accurate report or you mean the most fun report? How about this? The best prediction or the best. Hmm. I don't know okay. how I would quantify it right. right now. I'll, I'll do this. There's some guys that I've tied into that I really liked that I made some pretty good, uh, you know, have, the calls I've made have, have borne out pretty well. By the um, way, I just looked at a Byron Buxton report because I had it in front of me. When I put him on? Eric Davis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was kind of the center fielder of the time. Um, I would say Kevin Gosman was a good one. It's almost been the same track as, as Kevin Brown, which was his comparison. Um, I would say Tim Anderson was a good one, um, you know, as far as like, and we're talking about the early round guys, right? I would say Michael Walker was a good one. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, obviously Springer was a good report. You know, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have concern in the bat, you know, his adjustability. I think I wrote that a couple of times, um, you know, but if it all hit, which it obviously had, it was going to be pretty good, you know. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wrote... Uh, Man, Sonny Gray was a fun report. It was a pretty good one. Um, I believe I sent you one on uh, Tyler Beatty. I think, you know, I thought he was Mike Messina. That was a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's been some that's good. A bit of, that's a bit of a miss, though. Nah, I don't know about that. He's getting started. You know, Messina pitched a long time. Beatty's been hurt. Had Tommy John. The delivery is pretty similar. The stuff is pretty similar. Um, you know, he's not a perfect fit with that, but when we're talking about role, you know, we'll see where it goes. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Messina's a Hall of Famer, but I do think that at the time he had that type of projection and upside. 
No um, offense, Tyler. Yeah, and he's throwing 98 miles an hour right now. I gave him a 55 fastball, you know, so it wasn't a perfect science. It's uh, that's what that's what happened. So, look, there, there's been some good ones. Reese Hoskins was a good report. Uh, that's 2014, I believe. I have to find that somewhere. Um, there's there's been some some good ones at the top. Um, Tyler Naquin, Andy Van Slyke was a comparison there out of AM. Um, it's been uh, Zanino, Terry Steinbach. You know, I mean, some, some of these guys and some of these guys they didn't love. Like you just you saw them and you got it. But when you're picking up at the top of the draft, and we unfortunately where we picked, we picked up at the top quite a bit. Um, you know, it was uh, you have to be able to make those decisions in the room if you're going to hang your draft on a player. Um, there's other stuff that goes into picks later on down the line. There's area scout picks that are pure to those guys. They know the guys. There's um, there's mid round pick, which are cross check and area scout picks combined. But the top, you know, it's it's a it's definitely cross check and scout and director pick. And you have to be able to put yourself in the best position as an organization if the number one pick or number two pick or guys you're, you're going to carry your draft with. Anthony Rendon. That's Anthony Rendon is probably the best report you've ever written. 71 OFP. Um, I looked at my Mike Trout report. I will send that to you. You know, my second year scouting, and I put him in the sandwich round. Like, I, I didn't love it. Like, Randall Gritchick, I got right, but I put him in the fifth round or fourth round. You know, I think he went, he went in the first round ahead of uh, – ahead of um, Trout? Of Trout, of Trout. And I put him in the fourth round for what his role would actually be because of how he, he, you know, played out. Schwarber, I put Schwarber where he belonged. He went way ahead of that. I understand why looking at the draft, but – He's born out to be what he was. So, you know, I, I, there's a lot of reports that um, I wrote where guys turned out being who they are because of the pro lens, because you couldn't get past it. And there's some guys I wrote that I got right. And some guys I wrote, I didn't get right. It's just, that's how you do it. Some guys you, there's going to be more guys you get wrong than what you get right. You had Vinny Castilla as the comp for Anthony Rendon. Yeah. So I thought he was. Seventy-one point three. Yeah, it's the highest OFP I ever put on it. O OFP means overall future potential. A lot of clubs don't use that now; they just go to roll and the grades. And so he would have been a roll seven, which is, or even an eight, which would be an all-star every year, perennial bat. And um, you know, he's pretty pretty good player. <laughs> so uh, pretty happy with that one. I was I kind of wrote that to make a point. Like you couldn't. There's only one tool he had that wasn't a seven. It was his foot speed. Everything else was just was seven, 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 seven. I mean, it's what, how you get that's how you get there. Yep. Seven, 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 seven. <laughs> I love this athleticism. Can he play? Determination. <laughs> I have to look at it upside down or to the side because that's the way it's formatted. Yeah. Hey, uh, real quick, Kendall Graveman is reportedly going to the White Sox, which is really interesting because. He's the guy that hit Jose Abreu, that got Tony Larusa's feathers all ruffled. Right. One, I think it was three years, twenty-four million is the reported amount, which I think is way more than the Astros would like to pay a reliever. And second of all, Tony's been around this game for so long. Would he even address that situation? Come spring training or before? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll talk about it just because they have to talk about it, but that's it. I mean, now your teammates are going to war together. You know, but again, similar to Verlander and Syndergaard last week we talked, 
You've got Aaron Loop signing yesterday with the Angels for two and 17, and Graven goes against three and 24, right? So the market's being set by somebody, and somebody else is beating it the next day or playing within that market or going above it. Um, and, and so you've seen that there's going to be a run on relievers now. There's going to be guys that want to sign that. There's going to be starting pitching. I, I mentioned Stroman earlier. I'd be I'd be not be surprised if Stroman comes off the board of the Angels fast. You know what I mean? The Angels, by the way, seem to like look out at Queens and just kind of like throw darts and pick for who they want and pull them over to the West Coast. So, um, you know, I saw a, a great picture today on Twitter of Steve Cohen in an Angels hat that said, you know, welcome to the Angels, Steve Cohen, billionaire. It was beautiful, you know. So um, I, I, I think uh, I, I think that yeah, I'm not surprised at that because that's the market. Um, the the offseason is going to be a little bit crazy, and I know a lot of GMs and clubs are focused on getting stuff done before that lockout. I always thought Marcus Stroman would be a good fit for the Astros. Strong personality could fit into this clubhouse because at the time they had your Garrett Coles and your you're Justin Verlander's guys securing themselves. And, and I thought that here's a guy that, you know, could slide right in, maybe learn a few things, pick up a few things. Didn't come to fruition, though. It's amazing that he did and Osuna did, you know. I mean, I just I, I feel like uh, I think Stroman needs to be somewhere. It's a little bit I don't say a bigger city, but, you know, Houston's such a fun, relaxed, supportive city. I think he needs to go somewhere. It's a little bit. Um, really? You don't think it would be a good fit? I, I do. I just think his personality fits in fits in LA a little bit. You know, okay. I mean, I don't I don't know that he goes back to the Mets, and I know he's not going to be a Yankee. So, um, you know, I, I feel like he's he's he, Toronto wasn't for him. Um, you know, Houston and Toronto are somewhat similar. You know, in 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 mentality and approach to things. I don't know that that's going to work. I think I think he goes to the Angels. I, I don't think the Dodgers won't touch him. You know, they they still have Bauer on their payroll and. And they will because I'd be surprised if anybody touches him ever after this. It's just kind of, it's kind of a tough one, but um, I would I would imagine he ends up in uh, in Anaheim. Matter of fact, I'll, I'll go one further. I'll say Kevin Gosman to Anaheim too. Wow, back in Seattle. I mean uh, San Francisco. And by the way, if Gosman ends up in Seattle, that means JP Crawford and Kevin Gosman, two of the guys I wanted the most in in the West Coast, uh, or in Seattle. When you when you were with there, Seattle, I'm gonna end up in Seattle. I might lose my mind. Like I might just I might go on and do my own deal, like on Twitter Live, like I did with Luno that one time, and just kind of go. I mean, you got to be kidding me! For all that to end up in Seattle, cool. Say this about Stroman though: led baseball with 33 games started last year. The record wasn't great, but the ERA was right around three for a 10 and 13 guy. So, um, you know, I, I, don't I still think there's a lot to like about him. Oh, I do know the talent, the talent's a talent. Like he, he's, he can help you win games. He'll compete. Like it's the same thing. That's not a, that's not an issue. Like I'm not worried about handing him the ball to go out and compete every day. If anybody's worried about that, they're, they're paying attention to the wrong things. I will also tell you, um, and I, and this is the analytical side of me. People don't want to hear in today's day and age, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to win, wins and losses anymore because we're pulling guys after four innings and five innings. They don't have a chance to finish the game. Wins and losses to me are a statistic that mattered when guys could finish the game or go deeper. When you go seven innings a night, yeah, that's your game to, to win. But if you're going to pitch four and two-thirds or five innings flat, I don't know. That's a team win. I don't know how that's a you win. There's too much ball, too much ball game left for you to win or lose. You know what I mean? So I, I stopped paying a lot of attention to that. So 10 to 13, especially on a Mets team and in a Mets organization that's averaged 78 wins over the last decade. I don't really have a whole lot to say about that. His his advanced metrics to me 
and his traditional numbers are pretty good. And, and, and I, to me, that's where his value is. I figured I'd get all traditional being that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. So I got you. I got you. All right, everybody. Um, I could not come up with a good scouting report from the bottom of Jeremy's list this week. So I will do, I'll do extra work next week to come up with one so we can get this, get this thing rolling again with your um, strongest shoulders of the week. We'll do that. The strongest right. shoulders each week. Guys who are holding up the draft boards. <laughs> strongest guys on our list. But I, I you know, yeah. the good news is that this week there's a couple of things out there on Twitter they can look at. The Springer report is out there. Yep. So if anybody wants to see it, they feel free. I'll uh, post it, it on this too. It is a lot of fun. I uh, will say this: reliving some of that and and seeing how this stuff turns out later. When you uh, read that report, when you read that report, can you? Is there anything that you wrote that you were surprised you wrote or you forgot that you wrote in that? Because how many reports have you written since then? Thousands, right? So yeah, there- I mean, probably. It's not um, – It's I don't think I forget – you don't forget those. You know, you don't forget the comparisons. Um, you know, we were – I think we were in Atlanta. Or we were in Houston. We were talking about my report on Dansby Swanson. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't forget that type of stuff. Um you know, I, I thought Bregman was going to be Biggio, frankly. You know, I just did. And he's playing third base, but. He's Biggio. Yeah, it's not that far one off. Healthy, so, one healthy. Yeah, I just, um, I, I they're a lot of fun to come back, a lot of fun to see how, see how it turned out. Um, you know, I didn't have, I, 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 I've had some misses that were, you know, guys I didn't like. Paul Goldschmidt will forever be across the bear. I missed him. I know everybody else missed him because he went in the eighth round, but I missed him. But I didn't miss him again when I saw Reese Hoskins, right? I wasn't going to do it. So how you learn from it, what you do when you go forward, um, resiliency. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. This reminds me of days in Connecticut. It reminded me of, of jumping on a plane when it was Continental Airlines. How about that? This was Continental Airlines. I had to go see Springer and those guys up there in the uh, in, in, in uh, Connecticut play in the Oneonta Tigers State. No, it was the, um, it's the Tigers A-Ball Stadium in Connecticut, New York Penn League, and I can't remember which. It'd be the for. Connecticut Tigers. So was that, that Norwich? Was that Norwich? Norwich? Yep, that's it. So I went up there to see them play. You know, and you know who was at that game back then? And I, he introduced himself, and I was like, "Who's this dude?" Farhan Zaidi, and he was standing there with with the A's contingent and Billy Owens. And I knew Billy, and then, hey, Jeremy, what's up? And he goes, "Hey, how are you?" I'm Farhan Zaidi. I was like, "Hey, man, nice to meet you." You know, I mean, that that's the type of, of stuff that comes back. It's going to watch Tyler Beattie pitch um, in high school in a little bit of a snowstorm in somewhere in Massachusetts. You know, again, Continental Airlines landing in, in Logan driving. You know, it's, it's things like that that you that you that you remember. So um, Jock Peterson was a fun one. He's out there now on Twitter. Jock Peterson was a fun one. I actually got yelled at for that report. It's a true story. All right. We have three minutes remaining. All right. How did. How and why did you get yelled at? So I, I saw Jock in an event, a couple of events the summer prior, just, you know, out of area stuff I was doing. I was still an area scout at the time. And so I was fortunate, you know, that unlike people that scream from rooftops and, you know, intelligibly, um, I was given a lot of assignments to go see players out of my area because they trusted me to do so. Um, thankfully, it feels like I repaid that trust, but they trust me to do so. So I go into Northern California. And I'm cleaning out NorCal with three or four guys, and I go see Jock Peterson. And I go see him work out that day, and then I go see him play at in the San Jose Giants Stadium that night. And he tears the cover off the ball. And I've seen him in the summer. 
and he's playing uh, center field. And I don't think he's a center fielder. He's going to play a corner, but you get the idea. Um, I write him up. And then we had to do what was called, what, summations and we had to send a quick summation in with the OFP. Just so we got to turn the report in, but what we OFP roll around, how much we pay him and the summation. So he sent that in an email. I got a call within seconds. What do you mean? Because I don't think the West Coast guy out there liked him. Right. And so I went in there to see him and I and I would call it stuff on him. I stuffed him and I put him in the second round and uh, I got a phone call and I just I had to wear it for like 15 minutes. And I was just like this. <laughs> and I let him get done. And he goes, are you there? I said, yeah. And he goes, how can you not say anything? I said, what do you want me to say? He goes, are you telling me that this guy, this guy can play? Are you telling me he's a bat? Are you telling me I need to go see him? And I said, uh, I don't know who told you not to. Like, yes, you need to come see this guy. All right? All right, I got to go. I got to go. I'll call you back. I love. I was Bruce's side. I love Bruce. God rest him. He's a great guy. Man, he cared about us. But, uh, yeah, it was about 30 minutes of getting worn out total about the report I, I wrote on Jock Peterson. He finally said, is this guy any good? <laughs> like, yeah, he's good. Go see him. Well, just from the bloodlines alone made it intriguing, right? I mean, dad made it to triple a and um you look at the body you said i mean in your report you said he looks like a young jeff jenkins and your player comp was a good one i don't think certainly he's hit for the average that your player comp did during his career that being yeah. mike mike greenwell but jock peterson's pretty good jock peterson's a pretty good player i thought he was going to hit and be better as a hitter and a doubles guy than a true power guy. That's what I thought he was going to have to do to play every day. Um, and he's had some bouts of not playing every day when he's tried to strike, he's tried to hit the ball too far and strike out. And he's just better as a hitter. So, but it's a pure bat. He's left-handed. He's always got a couple of rings. He's probably going to be that mercenary that goes to teams to help win rings every year. Now he might end up with, with 10 of them for all we know. Um, but yeah, th those were a lot of fun reports to write, see how they panned out. And here's, here's more proof that Jock Peterson is pretty good. As our uh, alarm goes off, similar batters through the age of 29. Gorman Thomas, Rob Deere, Jay Buhner, Jose Bautista, yeah. Greg Vaughn, yeah. Randall Gritchick's on there. Yep. Jorge Soler. But um, all those guys swing and miss a lot. Probably nobody more than Rob Deere. You know, but all those guys swing and miss. And that's that's what Jock has turned into. So my report probably should have been flipped, you know, where I had the numbers and pit and power flipped. But I thought he was going to use a pure bat that had some slug. I didn't think he was going to turn into such a slugger. Uh, but that's all player makeup and mentality and approach. Either way, he's got a couple of rings. And he's ha having a pretty good life. So it was good fun to see him play. Jock Peterson, happy Thanksgiving to you. Jeremy Booth, happy Thanksgiving to you. And to everyone who watches us on YouTube and listens on either Podbean, iTunes, or whatever else is out there, happy Thanksgiving to you. And uh, we'll talk to you next time, right, Jeremy, on Thank Extra you. Bases. Happy Thanksgiving, Jason. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody else.